Gospel of Matthew, um, as was just read to us, Matthew chapter 5, this very well-known parable of the talents. Now, um, before we begin, let me just give you a little bit of um, background to this parable. Uh, As most of you probably know, a parable was a story that Jesus told, a teaching tool, um, to reveal some aspect of God's kingdom um, to his people. And one thing that Jesus sometimes said after concluding one of his parables um, is this line that can seem very odd to someone who's hearing it for the first time or to someone who isn't all that familiar with the Bible. Um, Jesus would often say, let him, he who have ears, let them hear. So last September, my family and I, I have three children, we went to uh, Hershey Park in Pennsylvania And there we watched a show with sea lions. And as we were watching the show with sea lions, the trainer told us all all the different ways you can tell the difference between a sea lion and a seal. Does anybody know the ways you can tell the difference between a sea lion and a seal? Well, I'm about to tell you, okay? One of the key and easy ways you can tell the difference between a sea lion and a seal is that a sea lion has external ears that you can see, whereas a seal, you cannot see their ears. Now, why do I tell you that? Because when Jesus says to the crowd, let he who has ears, let him hear, he's not saying that some people in the crowd are sea lions and that some of them are seals, that some of them have ears that he can see physically and some of them for some reason, are missing their ears. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that even though they all had ears, not all of them could understand. There's a wonderful little book on the parables called Glory Veiled and Unveiled. Glory Veiled and Unveiled. And I think that that is such a beautiful title. It's such a good title because it really describes what the parables are. You see, for those who have a desire to know God more, to learn more about his kingdom, when they hear the parable, it unveils some aspect of God's glory to them. But for those who don't have a hunger for the Lord, who aren't really all that interested, they will hear the parable, and instead of unveiling God's glory, it will further veil God's glory to them. In other words, someone who comes to the Bible and to the parables with a hard heart is going to walk away with an even more hard heart, a more hardened heart. And if that is you, you'll read the parables and you'll walk away thinking, at best, oh, that was an interesting little story. But at the end of it, you will walk away further away from God than you started off. And so as we read today's parable, my prayer is that even if this is a parable that is very well familiar Uh, to most of you, that the Lord would give us a fresh conviction and a fresh zeal, and that he would give us the spiritual ears that we need to be able to hear and to understand. Now, uh, I want to tell you a joke, if that's okay. (laughs) So there was once a very wealthy man, and just like the landowner here, he has three servants. One of the servants is a German man, one of the servants is an Italian man, and one of the servants is a Korean man. To the German man, some of you know the joke already, to the German man he says, please take care of my gardens, make sure they're well uh, manicured, everything is well watered. The German man says, I'll take care of it. 
To the Italian man, he says, make sure you please take care of my groceries by the time I get back. Take care of my groceries. Italian man says, I will do it, no problem. He says to the Korean man, make sure you take care of my supplies. Korean man says, no problem, I'll take care of it. The man goes away. After some time, he comes back, and he's looking at his garden. Everything is well watered and manicured. Everything is perfectly in place. He says to the German servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Then he goes into his kitchen. He looks to see if the groceries have been taken care of. They are. The pantries are full. The fridge is full. So he says to the Italian servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Then he goes into his office, and he looks at his supply closet and everything's a total mess everything's completely empty and he's looking around for the korean servant to scold him when all of a sudden from outside behind the door the korean man pops down and says supplies okay <laughs> what is the point of me telling you that joke the point is that in that joke this poor korean guy he thought that supplies meant surprise and because of that misunderstanding, he completely misses the point. Two of the servants get the point. The Korean guy completely misses it. In the same way, in today's parable, we have two servants who get the point and one who completely misses the point. And as we consider today's parable, I want to break it up for you under the following three headings. I want to first look at God's request to these men. Then I want to look at God's reward. And finally, I want to look at the response of the third man, which I have called the fatal response. So the request, the reward, and then the response. We'll begin by looking at God's request. If you look at verse 14, Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey. And one thing you need to understand here is that in the immediately preceding chapter, chapter 24, Jesus has begun his journey to Jerusalem for what will be the last time. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, he decides to stop at the Mount of Olives. And it's at this time the disciples think to themselves, this is our opportunity to ask Jesus all the questions that we've been waiting to ask him. And they start to ask him about the end of the world. Because Jesus has been talking about having to go away and then at some time returning. And they think this means the end of the world. And so in chapter 24, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what the end of the world is going to look like and what they ought to be doing as they wait. This parable, this parable of the talents is part of that teaching. And so it is designed, it is intended to help you and I know what we ought to be doing now as we wait for Christ's return. And so if you look at verse 14, the it there is the kingdom of God. Jesus says that life in God's kingdom is like working for a man who is going away on a long journey. This man calls his servants to himself. He gives each of them an assignment. Each of these three men is given a measure of talents that is equal to their ability. Now, one thing that we need to clarify right off the bat is that Jesus is not using the word talents in the way that you and I use it in modern-day English. This is not a talent like you would see in America's Got Talent, right? A talent here in the Bible is a measure of money. And we can't know exactly what the value of one talent was in Jesus' day, but we do know that one talent was a considerable sum of money. 
And so by um, some estimates, one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. Now, in other places in the Bible, a denarii is described as one day's wage. So you're talking about 6,000 days worth of salary, right? Or roughly 20 years of labor. So some people estimate that in today's money, one talent is somewhere between 600 dollars and $900,000. And so you can see what the master is asking these men to do is not a menial task. He's not saying to these men, hey, take care of this chump change. Make sure it's okay by the time I get back. He's not saying, hey, take care of my groceries and my supplies. This is a significant investment that these men are asked to steward. And we see in verse 15 that to the first servant, the master gives five talents. This is the equivalent of several million dollars. And in verse 16, we learn that this first servant goes at once, expeditiously. He doesn't waste any time, and he begins to work to earn a return on his master's money. The Bible tells us that this man took the money, and he actively traded with it. This was not a passive investment. He didn't go and deposit it in the bank and just wait for the money to accrue interest. He didn't buy up a bunch of real estate, wait for the property values to go up, and then um, liquidate. This man has taken the money and he's actively, diligently working to increase his master's return. The fact that this servant is being commended for his diligence and for his activity is made clearer when we see with the third servant, the master describes him as being lazy. So in contrast to the lazy third servant, the first servant has been industrious. He's been diligent. Now, the second servant receives two talents, and he too is industrious. He too is diligent, and he goes out to make his master's money work. Like the first servant, he doubles his master's money. The third servant takes the one talent that he's been given, goes into the backyard, digs a hole, buries the talent, and then sits on his rear end. Now, we're going to find out a little bit later what makes this man do what he does, but essentially what he's decided to do is live for his own purposes rather than his master's. This man is being willfully disobedient. Now, at this point, someone might say, well, what command has he disobeyed? Because if you look at this parable very, very carefully, there isn't really an explicit request made to these three men. All the master wants these three men to do is to be faithful with his property. But as we read through the rest of the parable, it becomes clear that even if it's never stated explicitly, there is an implicit understanding that to be faithful means to work. It means to be diligent. It means to invest whatever it is that the master has given to you. That's what it means to be faithful. I think if you look around at our churches today and you look at all the people that you know who call themselves Christians, you would agree that we have far too many Christians today who are sitting on their rear end. They're sitting on the sidelines. And for some of them, the reason why they're doing that is because they think that they need to wait for some sort of explicit instruction from the Lord, some audible voice from heaven to tell them, you need to join the praise team. You need to join the uh, welcoming committee, ushering committee, worship committee. 
you need to give more of your finances. They're waiting for some sort of explicit instruction from the Lord. But just like in this parable, God does not have to give us an explicit, detailed roadmap. It's implied. It's implied in the fact that God is God and we are not. It's implied in the fact that he is the creator and we are the creation. And because of that fact, we owe our obedience to him. Without him ever having to tell you what to do, you owe your obedience to the Lord. And I think that that is what needs to be the starting point as we try to understand this parable. You see, Contrary to what many people think, this parable is not just telling people that they need to use their gifts, their abilities, their money to serve the Lord. I believe that what Jesus is talking about here does include all of those things, but it's actually much deeper than that. I believe that what Jesus is talking about here at bottom is giving our lives back to the Lord. The lives that we have been given, giving them back to the Lord. And I think that the request that God is making to us through this parable is that we be diligent to invest the gifts that God has given us with the goal of having our entire lives be given to him as an act of worship and sacrifice. Do you know why that's a very important point to grasp? It's important because if you think this parable is just about using some of your gifts and abilities to serve the Lord, then you can wrongly assume that just because you're on the praise team or the welcoming committee or the ushering committee, that you're being a good and faithful servant. Because after all, you're using some of your gifts and your abilities to serve the Lord, but that's not necessarily the case. Just because you're part of some committee doesn't mean that the Lord is going to look at you and conclude that you are a good and faithful servant. What God is asking us to do is to live our entire lives for him. This is the request that is being made to you and to me. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that he will rejoice even if his life is being poured out like a drink offering. You listen to those words. Those are not the statements of a man who's just trying to use some of his gifts and some of his talents for the Lord. That is the heartbeat of a man who's offering up his entire life as a living sacrifice to God. And if I'm right about this, if what Jesus is talking about here is not just giving your gifts, but actually your entire life, then all of a sudden, we find ourselves standing much closer to the third servant than we do either of the first two. Because all too often, our lives resemble the life of the third servant much more than they resemble the lives of the first or the second. So that's the request that God is making to us. Let's now look at the reward. If you look at verse 20, when the master returns, the first servant goes up to him and says, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And the master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the master says the exact same thing, verbatim, 
to the second servant who had been given two talents. And I just want to make two quick points about the reward that God gives to these two men. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Even though these two men were given different amounts to invest, one was given five, one was given two, they both hear the same commendation from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. And not only that, they both are given the same new calling. Jesus says to both of them, I'm now going to set you over much. And they both were received into the same destiny. Enter into the joy of your master. A commentator named Dan Doriani writes this, Like a mother or father, like the best teacher or coach, the Lord does not demand that everyone become a star. He takes pleasure in watching each of us do our best according to our abilities. Imagine the Lord designs and manufactures all kinds of cars. A sports car that does 185 miles per hour, a muscular truck, a spacious van, an efficient family sedan. The maker will not berate the van for failing to go 120 miles per hour. He does not blame the sports car for poor gas mileage. Each car is pleasing when it performs the task that suits its design. The Lord is pleased with us when we do what we can with the abilities he gives. You know, if we think of the Lord as this divine car maker, there are many ways when I feel like a Ford Pinto. Now, some of you younger people may not know what a Ford Pinto is, but suffice it to say, it wasn't a very good car. In fact, the only thing that the Ford Pinto was good at was catching on fire. That's the only thing that the Pinto did very, very well. And some days that's exactly what I feel like. Like I'm not being much use at all to God or to God's kingdom. But the bottom line is this. Even if I'm never going to be the next Tim Keller or John Piper or John Lee, right? I want to do whatever I can with whatever I have. I desperately want to hear the Lord say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know that if I put my faith in him and try to live my life for him to the best of my ability, I will hear those words. He will not berate me for not being a sports car. And if you do the same, you will hear the same. You know, when I was starting off in ministry, one of my mentors, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, James, you know, just be prepared as you do ministry, some of the congregants are going to say some nasty things about you. I thought, you know, I don't really care. I'm a pretty insensitive guy. You can say pretty much anything to me. It won't bother me. But then he said something that really uh, uh, set me back. He said, the worst things that you are going to hear are going to be said by other people in ministry. Why is that? It's because there are people out there who are Pintos who want to be Bentleys. But if you're a pinto, you just have to be a faithful pinto. Be faithful with what you have, with what God has given you, and God will reward you accordingly. Here's the second thing I want to point out about God's reward. If you look at what the master says to these two men, he says that these two have been faithful over what? A little. A little. 
This is an indication of how wealthy the master is. He says, okay, you've done well with this chump change of a couple million dollars. Now I'm going to set you over something significant. Do you understand why the Lord asked you to give your earthly life to him? It's because in exchange, he wants to give you an eternal life. This is why Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and life in abundance. You know, if you're sitting here today and you find it hard to give your money to God, you find it hard to give your time to the Lord, I want you to be reminded of what the Lord says in Mark 10, that there is not a single person who sacrifices anything for the Lord that will not receive 100-fold in return. Not five times return on your investment, not ten times your return on your investment, a hundred times return on whatever you give to God. And we see this again in Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, there's this very important passage in which the Apostle John is describing the heavenly city. And he sees flowing through the middle of this city a river of life. And John says, in addition to that, what he sees lining either side of this river is the tree of life. Now, it's very easy to miss the significance of this. What you need to understand is back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, there was only one tree of life. But as John is seeing the new heavens and the new earth, he sees that tree of life line either side of the river. In other words, there's been a multiplication. What all that means for us is simply this, okay? Heaven is not just a recapitulation of Eden. Heaven is going to be Eden plus, not just eternal life. We're talking about eternal life in super abundance. It's where we enter into the fullness of the joy of the master. A few months ago, I was called upon to conduct my first ever funeral. It was the father of one of our congregants who had been attending our church off and on for about a year. And he was hit by a drunk driver driving down from Canada, and he passed away. But even though he had been attending our church off and on for about a year, I never got an opportunity to really get to know him. And so as I was preparing for the funeral services, I sat down with his wife and with his children to get a better idea of who this man was. And as I was speaking to this man's wife, one of the first things that she told me about him was that he was always talking about wanting to go home and to be with the Lord. He was always talking about wanting to go home and to be with his God. Now, this man was not suicidal. This man did not want to die. But he knew what was waiting for him on the other side of death. Amongst modern-day Christians today, he is a rarity. I do not see this attitude reflected in very many Christians that I meet. But that man should not be the exception. He should actually be the rule. John Calvin puts it this way, No one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Is that true of you? Do you joyfully await the day, await the day of your death and the final resurrection? About a hundred years after John Calvin, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks put it this way, a believer's last day is his best day. 
do you believe that to be true in your life? Do you earnestly believe that your last day on the planet Earth will be your best day on planet Earth because that is the day that you will enter into the joy of your master? You see, if you don't have a good grasp on what it means to have an eternal life, you're not going to be a good steward of your earthly one. Now, I know that for any non-Christians who may be here, and even for many Christians, all of this can be hard to believe. It can be hard to accept, right? Because it sounds so unbelievable. Life in superabundance, Eden plus. But if the Bible is true, and because life is so fragile and so unpredictable, every single one of us is just a moment away from either entering into that reality or being cast out into the outer darkness where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're only one moment away. Sadly, that latter destination is where our third servant ends up. So let's look now, finally, at what I've called his fatal response. If you look at verse 24, this third servant approaches his master and he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Here's what this man is essentially saying. He's saying, I know you. You're a man who loves to profit off of other people's work. Other people sow, you reap. Other people scattered seed, and you gather the harvest. And because I know you're a cold, calculating, manipulative man, I did not want to risk losing what you gave me, so I made sure that I didn't lose it. But if you think about it, where was this view of the master coming from? Because it certainly wasn't based in any sort of reality. If you look at the way the master treats the first and second servant, we know that the third servant has it completely wrong. His view of his master is completely backward. The master is not some sort of hard taskmaster who just wants to get people to do his bidding. He's a master who wants to bless his people and share his kingdom with them. And because this third servant is now slandering his master's name with this false portrayal of who he is, the master calls him not only lazy, he calls him wicked. You see, when the master says to him in verse 27, if it was just a matter of laziness, you should have taken that talent and gone to the bank, and at least I would have earned interest. But it wasn't simply a matter of laziness. There was wickedness here at work as well. It was this man's sin. This man refused to live his life for the Lord, and instead he chose to live it for himself. And because he's decided to live for himself, his punishment is that the one talent that he was given is taken away from him and he's cast out into the outer darkness. There may be some of you here who are suffering from an incorrect view of the Lord. Some of you here who do not understand that if you die to yourself and you give your life to God, that it will result in the greatest joy and the greatest experience of love that any of us can possibly experience in this life. Some of you don't know that if you truly seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, that God is going to add all things unto you. It really is true. One of my very favorite quotes is from G.K. Chesterton. 
Chesterton says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. I flubbed that, so let me try that again. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. You see, there may be some of you here who think, if I start to really invest my life for the Lord, if I start to really give sacrificially, if I start to take risks for God, that I'm going to end up getting hurt, I'm going to end up being miserable. Some of you may think that if you give more to the Lord in time, in money, in talent, that you're going to one day end up regretting it and wish that you had kept it all for yourself. Well, Chesterton says, try it and see. Because Christianity has never been tried and found wanting. Never. And it never will be. So as you examine your life this afternoon, ask the Lord to show you whether or not you're investing your talent or whether you have buried it. Are you actually living your life for God or are you just giving Him lip service while you're sitting on your rear? R.C. Sproul says that there are many Christians today who are living their lives based on an idea of justification by death. So back in the day, the Christians and the, the Catholics and the Protestants used to fight over whether you were justified by faith or whether you were justified by works. R.C. Sproul says that for Christians today, none of that matters because they think they'll be justified by their death. Because at one point they gave their life to Christ, they did some things for the Lord, and so now it doesn't matter if they have faith or works, they're going to be justified by their death. And that is nothing but a bald lie. Today's parable tells us that to invest your talent for the Lord means to live your life for Christ and for his gospel. Jesus is the true, good, and faithful servant who knew that the Lord is not some hard taskmaster, but instead is a loving Father. Christ knew that if he was faithful to do the Father's will, that he was going to receive an outsized return. But for Christ, it wasn't money. It was us. It was you, and it was me. It is the Spirit of Christ that enables you and me to be good and faithful servants in our lives here today. Therefore, let us live our lives for Christ. Let us have our hearts be filled with a burning desire to hear the Lord one day say to us, Well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray.